Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about In the Heights, the film adaptation of the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical directed by John M. Chu. The film is currently in theaters and available to stream on HBO Max. Early reviews have been great. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 96%, and the critics' consensus reads, Lights Up for In the Heights, a joyous celebration of heritage and community fueled by dazzling direction and sing-along songs. My guest today is the film's editor, Myron Kirstein. Myron, you've been editing film and television for 25 years, and In the Heights is your second collaboration with John M. Chu. Welcome to Below the Line. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate being here. Quick note for listeners, our discussion today is likely to contain spoilers, so proceed with caution. Before we get into spoiler territory, however, Myron, I'd like to learn a little more about your career in the film industry. Based on IMDb, it looks like you've had a couple of early gigs as a production assistant before you focused on editing. Uh, that's correct. I was a PA on music videos. I was a PA on uh, you know uh, indie films uh, like the Day Trippers. Finally, I was on a I was a PA on this TV show called TV Nation, and TV Nation was Michael Moore's uh, news magazine, six, sixty minute style pre uh, Daily Show satire. And there was a editors that actually worked on that show. And suddenly I started becoming a post PA and then eventually became an assistant editor. So that's how I found my way into post. And so what have been some of your notable work as an editor leading up to In the Heights, your work with uh, musicals or sort of music driven films? It's funny because I feel like everything I've done has been a buildup to In the Heights literally working on films like Raising Victor Vargas, which is Puerto Rican kids on the Lower East Side, cut to me working on Hedwig on the Angry Inch as an additional editor, even working as an assistant editor on films like Velvet Goldmine, which is a David Bowie-inspired musical, and then working on films like Garden State or Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which are heavy music-driven films. And then finally, that leading to films like the remake of Fame or um, the Glee 3D concert movie. All these movies sort of prepared me for the eventual meeting of John Chu and working on Crazy Rich Asians, which was a comedy, but also had a lot of music in it. And then getting my shot working on something like In the Heights. I jokingly say that everything I've done is <laughs> basically training for In the Heights. You know, <laughs> you know, John would say the same thing, you know, all his step up movies, Everything he's done and genre work, you know, was basically training for working together. Now, it's interesting. Was that a personal direction of yours to pursue so many films with musical elements? Or do these films start to sort of come after you based on the resume of having done them before? I just wanted to make anything. I, it, <laughs> I love Spielberg. I love Lucas. And then that eventually translated in college to David Lynch and Fellini, you know, Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was younger, I loved music-driven films like John Hughes films. I love Purple Rain. I love Grease. I love The Music Man. I love all that jazz. I love these old um, on-the-road musicals with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. I was kind of a mutt of influences. So I think to some degree, when I got the call to make anything, I was just like, just whatever will come my way, I'll just, I'll just keep, you know. And I also had to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. So... I wasn't looking to make the remake of Fame, but by meeting Kevin Tancherone, who is a 
very talented director and choreographer. And he happened to also be friends with John Chu. So, you know, one thing le leads to another and that network just kind of builds upon itself. But I also think that because I liked John Hughes films, I, you know, gravitate or, you know, even how Ashby films, you know, I gravitated to comedies and things with music. And, um, and then of course they keep calling you for, you know, similar things. So, yeah. If I had a career, you know, making action films, that'd be amazing. That's great too. But, you know, this is, this is um, where my path led me. And so, as you mentioned in passing, it uh, led you to working on Crazy Rich Asians with John M. Chu. That was your first collaboration. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about uh, yeah. meeting him. For, and, you know, you said you had a, you knew some folks in common. Yeah. So Kevin was one of those, one of those folks. And then um, Brad Simpson, who was actually the post supervisor on Velvet Goldmine. Uh, he was a post supervisor and I was the first uh, assistant editor on that show. So when I got the script for Crazy Rich Asians, I was like, well, who's connected to this? And here's Brad Simpson on there as a producer. So I'm calling up Brad. I was like, hey, Brad, I know we haven't talked in a while, but would you put in a good word to John? Do you think there's a possibility of me getting a meeting with him? He was like, absolutely. I think he'd be a great fit for this film. Cut to two weeks later, and I'm on a Skype interview with John M. Chu. He's in Malaysia prepping the movie. And I'm like, okay, I guess I made a, an impression on him. So he said, okay, let me think about it. Let me get back to you. And then I've cut to Nina having a similar call with Nina Jacobson, who's Brad's producing partner. And I made, you know, Nina's, you know, used to run studios. <laughs> and I guess I made an impression on her too. So John basically took a risk on me and said, okay, you're ready to move to Malaysia for a couple months. And wow. I was like, called up my wife and said, I think this is real. I'm going to be in Malaysia and Singapore for three months. Can I do this? Are you cool with this? You know? And she's like, you got to, you got to go. You got to do it. Thank goodness I was there because I got to connect with John Moore over that process of being there on the shoot, being close to him and just building trust. We screened 4K dailies two or three times a week. So that was really helpful, again, to sort of build trust with John. And once we were in post, we connected more over just making the film together, finding the film together. And then since then, you know, I've actually done, I've actually edited two pilots with him as well. So that was a, an opportunity to, again, just to establish a shorthand with him and build that trust even more. Because if we hadn't done that, I think that, you know, making a film like In the Heights would have been, would have taken longer, would have just, I think he would have really felt like he had to, I, w I won't say micromanage. I just think that he would probably be a fear that I wasn't looking through all the footage. And now he knows that I just comb through, you know, if it's 500 hours of footage, I'm going to look through it and I'm going to find, I'm going to find the, the gems in there. I think when talking about that collaboration, it's interesting. I also noticed that you've done a couple of television shows with John. Uh, you did an episode of Good Trouble and then uh, a handful of episodes of, of Home Before Dark, who's also an executive producer. And so to your point, he brought you along on those projects, it sounds like. And again, you're able to continue that relationship to the point where we're getting to end the heights. Yeah, it's... Um... Of course, he was like, do you want to do this? Like, of course, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> whatever you're doing next, I want to do it together. But also knowing that I had an opportunity to just keep, you know, we get to experiment with different, you know, formats 
by working on a television show versus a feature, like they have different rules of, um, you know, whether it's, you know, for network television with like act breaks or commercial breaks, or, you know, even a streaming service like Apple, like there's, you know, it's different than cutting a film where you're just like, you know, just make it whatever length you want to make it. They're like, you really got to get this down. And so it forced us to build up other muscles, uh, other skill sets in order to, um, to make those things. And, you know, and then again, you know, we're building that trust as well. And, you know, John left to basically prep in the Heights. And I continued on the Apple show, basically holding his torch for him to say, like, you need to get this to the finish line. So I, you know, I became very close with the showrunner because of that. So it was great to represent him in that way as well. Well, so you mentioned that John leaves to go start prep for In the Heights. In the Heights, uh, as people are probably aware, is one of those movies that because of COVID had its release date delayed and it sat on the shelf for a while. So when did John start prep? And then when did you come on full time as the editor for this? He he started prep the, uh, I believe it was like February of 2019. I came on the summer of 2019. And then he shot through the entire summer. And then we posted through February of 2020. And then we shut down as we were starting the mix. And then we moved everything to LA. And during that six months, we then um, opened up another edit room and we made additional tweaks. Uh, And when I say edit room, I mean an edit room in my living room. (laughs) And just to put it in perspective for a second, I had, I had a crew of 20 in New York. I had an amazing first assistant editor, Andy Pang, Elliot Traeger was our second, uh, Jim Bruning, Jennifer Dunnington were our music editors, Mark Russell was a VFX supervisor, so on and so forth. And cut to June of 2020, I'm alone in my uh, living room. And now John is alone in his living room across town. My assistant editor was home alone in his apartment in New York. So it was very surreal to be making additional tweaks that way over basically the course of a year and a half, you know, and now it's been two years since we started production. And we finished the mix in Warner Brothers, which originally we were going to finish it in New York because there was tax incentives to be in New York. And then finally, they're like, we're not going back to New York right now. It's just too much of a mess. So yeah, it's a very, it was a very incredible journey from start to finish. But also great to have that time to basically reflect on the cut. You know, we took out a couple big scenes. We put back a couple small scenes. You know, we kept tweaking the musical numbers and it was a silver lining to this whole thing. It is interesting that you have more time to sit with the film. There's no expectations of making a release date at that point because everything was TBD, particularly in those early months and while they figured out what work could actually get done versus when people were actually going to see stuff again. Well, I had a big expectation for the film to come out. I wanted the film to come out so bad anyways in the summer of 2020. You know, I was like, let's release it online. Like, screw the theaters. And John was like, you know, cool your jets. Like, we're going to wait a year. (laughs) And, you know, selfishly, I said this to him last night. I said, selfishly, you know, I wanted this film to come out for my career. You know, I wanted to benefit from people seeing the film. I wanted people to experience the joy. Like they, I really felt passionate that they needed that joy right now because everything was still so intense at that time. And I was sitting there literally in my living room saying, I have this thing right in front of me that people are going to weep over. I, I cry 
my I cry all the time. My family just <laughs> makes fun of me. <laughs> um, but I I really wanted it out there. And so I had an expectation, but he was like, no, let's finish it up properly. Let's not rush it. And let's let the studio system do what they do best, which is market this film, build it up. Let's make movie stars. Let's change the world. We can't do that with a release that just comes out uh, sort of like on the fly. Well, Myron, I want to come back at the end and remind me if I forget to talk about the uh, release of the film and and its initial reactions. But let's again go back to the beginning. So were you familiar with the stage play as its own entity before you got involved in the film? Just peripherally. I really thought that In the Heights wasn't a musical that would appeal to me because, you know, I wasn't a New Yorker. I didn't know. I didn't know Lynn at all. But of course, you know, once I was connected to the movie, then I'm watching YouTube clips and, you know, like everybody else, just sort of blown away by Ed Dusnavi and then, you know, the story that they were telling. And then, of course, Hamilton dropped. (laughs) Then you're like, oh, right. So he's the Shakespeare of our times. (laughs) Um, And I get to be involved in this thing. Like, holy shit. You know, I became a a student of it, you know, a, a bit more. That being said, you know, I wasn't obsessing over, you know, what songs we cut out or what characters were in the film. You know, I tried my best to keep the source material over here and the movie we're making here because it doesn't matter what the play was, what the stage production was. It just mattered like the film we were making here and now. And it's interesting. It's obviously a work of interpretation uh, because there are changes. There's plot points that are different between the play and the movie. But to your point, the movie stands on its own. Oftentimes you get these stage shows or stage musicals. Their translation ends up being as if the musical was filmed. And In the Heights doesn't feel like that. In the Heights feels very much like its own movie rather than an adaptation. Yeah, we get to do things that a stage production can do. We can, you know, go in for a close-up. We can feature somebody's expression. You know, we can pop out from, you know, 50 foot in the air, you know, overlooking a pool. Like the stage production can't do that. And I can create energy with the editing. And I could also just, you know, I can have a wonder like champagne. There's so many things in our toolbox, you know, as filmmakers that, you know, the stage production doesn't have. And so we're there just to, we're going to like harness every single one of those tools and make it feel like a, yeah, cinematic experience as we should be doing with anything. And also like very similar to like Crazy Rich Asians, like Crazy Rich Asians had its, had the book and we're like, the book is, is an incredible book, but we can't make the book. (laughs) We have to have a shorthand as well. Well, I want to ask some questions about specific scenes uh, from the movie and sort of the editing challenges involved. But before we do, let me geek out with you a little bit as far as process. Now, having done a lot of production time myself, I'm not as familiar with what happens in the post side of bringing something to the screen. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with production first. Yes, I came on about a week before production started. I was actually finishing the Home Before Dark for John (laughs) and Uh then going straight to In the Heights. The only thing I knew about really about the film was the script, which also had a lot of lyrics built into the script. So it was very, very long, then longer than a usual script. And then basically some of the idea, you know, some of the um, things that he pitched the studio originally images, you know, impressions. And then I had the pre-record. So I knew what the the basic sketches of the songs were going to sound like. And then he also showed me rehearsal footage that he had cut together with like animatics for the opening number. And then right then I was just like, oh, 
this is going to be something else. This is like, again, talking about the tear factory that I had over the course of this entire movie. Yeah, that it was just going to be an incredible experience. But basically, I was cutting as they were shooting and I would get 5, 10, 20 hours a week of footage of any particular musical number and often everyday dailies again crying <laughs> i'd get the dailies like sending videos to john chu and alice brooks like me being just really taken by the footage and it wasn't like any kind of dramatic scene or it was just like literally feeling the joy of these characters literally understanding that these people were being represented for the first time on a big screen this way i think one of the first numbers they shot was when you're home and that was the first time I saw Leslie Grace and Corey Hawkins together. And I was like, their chemistry is incredible. And they are performing this number through this entire park, you know, the same park where, mo- you know, most people, when they, they said, yeah, we're usually when they shoot this, when production shoot this park, it's like drug deals. That's how Hollywood usually represents this park, you know, and it's actually a a wonderful park where kids play and people have picnics and people play music. And here we're representing uh, Benny and Nina, basically saying this is this amazing place that uh, we're, you know, we're living in Washington Heights. Again, we're going to dive deeper into some of the scenes we're talking about. I do have one other question about Post, and that's, can you shed some light for me on your relationship as the editor with the sound department, both production, what's getting captured on set, and with the post-production sound editor, with there being so much emphasis on the music, obviously, what kind of relationship do you have normally, and is it different with a film like this? Um, It's definitely um, much more collaborative, because they're doing things on set, like literally recording live vocals to the songs that I could possibly use, like the beginning of When You're Home, for example, is Leslie Grace doing everything acapella, or Champagne, where the entire number is live. You know, we have to have a close dialogue to like, okay, we're doing this today, so don't use the playback. (laughs) Or, by the way, is any of this usable? Because there's so much much, uh, traffic noise that day. Can we use any of this stuff? And then also, the, you know, there's so much, it, there's, it's a real hat trick because you have a playback person on set as well. And you even have a person playing live piano on the set to be able to like cue the actors or get them in the right rhythm. So there's a constant sort of back and forth between post and production and just in that aspect. And then, you know, as far as the post, you know, the post sound with a, you know, with the re-recording mixers, I was cutting in 5.1 in my edit room. And so I was able to, uh, basically 5.1 is five speakers in my edit room. So I basically try to make my edit room sound like a movie theater as much as possible. And so I'm able to sort of create the spatial sort of feeling of like a traffic sound and whirling around me in the background or setting the music more in the room and having the vocals sort of sit in the center channel like dialogue. And I can give a, basically a sketch to the re-recording mixer and they can say, oh, that's that's what you guys are going for. Okay, now we'll take that on, you know, we'll put it in Atmos. <laughs> we'll put it all around you. Or we'll, you know, we're going to trick out the sound design like, you know, on steroids. And then we'll even give it back to you and say, what do you think of this? So there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth with Alex and Bill, the composers, you know, not just on the production side, but on the post side and working with the mixers. More than any other film, I felt like there was so much process between, you know, the different uh, key members. All right, well, let's turn our attention to how this came together. And 
no better place to start than discussing the opening scene, which really, again, gives me goosebumps just to think about how much it just <laughs> opens up the entire movie, introduces so much about both the characters and the music. And this comes to you on paper. What does it look like? And how do you make that translation into what we see? Well, it gives me goosebumps too. It's kind of like when you watch it, you're just like, I can't believe I made that. It's so amazing. <laughs> it's so incredible. But cutting something like that actually took almost the entire post-process because they shot it from the beginning of production deep into post. We had to even do pickup shots for the longest time. We had stock footage representing the uh, community chorus. And we had Google Maps re representing uh, the GW Bridge. Like the like that our aerial footage was basically, you know, stock footage and Google Maps, <laughs> you know, so it, it was a painstaking process of cutting all these different introductions, cutting all these different locations. But then on top of all that, you know, John and I had to we basically had to create the language for the rest of the movie. So, for example, the manhole cover, you know, that manhole cover was never supposed to spin. So we're like, let's put a little taste of magical realism. Let's put like words on the screen. Let's have a giant wave that crashes down. You know, what does a suenito mean? Like, let's do it in Spanish while they're saying it in English. Like, let's really mess with people. Let's stop music on a dime and wind it back up like a record scratch. Like, let's make sure that the coffee makers are cut rhythmically, but they also feel grounded. Like, let's make sure that, you know, you, you taste that spoiled milk <laughs> by, <laughs> but, you know, and let's do jump cuts. Let's, you know, but let's also hold on a shot and like, let the choreography sing. Alice had her whole crew shoot B-roll uh, camera the, over the entire shoot. So John was just like, if you like any of that stuff, just try to put it somewhere. I was like, okay, well, I'll put in the opening number where I'm cutting to like a bird nest or a bird box and then to somebody just looking out the window. Like all that stuff culminated to that end shot of hundreds of dancers and Yusnavi, you know, taking us in. And that's Alice Brooks, the cinematographer for the film. That's correct. The amazing Alice Brooks, who also has worked with John since his first student short films at USC. You know, when you talk about that B-roll, I, I was really struck by how the music is guiding it, but not in a way that it, you're feeling the music. It's just organic, the pictures and the music working together through that. It's like, are you cutting on the beat? It's like, no, I'm not really talking, cutting on the beat. Like I'm sometimes I'm cutting to the clave at the beginning and sometimes I'm not, you know, sometimes I'm actually cutting against, you know, what you think would be the obvious, you know, rhythm of the thing. And then sometimes I'm like right on the mark. So it, it was a lot of like understanding, like how we were building with the music. Sometimes like even when like Yusnavi, you know, hits that alarm clock, it's actually a little bit before the downbeat, I think. And mm -hmm. it's just like, it's just kind of like a little bit off. It's almost not satisfying in a way, but I love that because it just kind of keeps you a little bit like awake on your feet. Like you're you're kind of anticipating moments and you're like, oh, it already happened. And the same thing with like the record scratch, you know, uh, the manhole cover, you know, I think you're just not sort of prepared for it. And then I can cut to the beach and like the kids can like be laughing and you're snobbing. He's like, oh man, stop it. You're already making fun of me at the start of the story. And then you're like, okay, and let's start the song again. And so I love 
playing with all that B-roll footage as well as the footage that was actually shot for the number because it allowed me to sort of create more texture and more little pops of Washington Heights without, you know, being like, oh, just cut to a wide shot or cut to like a traditional establishing shot. Like just to fast forward to like, you know, the end of Pacencia Fay or Alabanza. And I have these two of my favorite shots is the shot of a ch- chain link fence and um, somebody, this last person walking by with a sparkler. When I saw that footage, it's like, I have no idea where this is going to go, <laughs> but I have to put it in the movie. Myron, that opens up a a larger question. How much autonomy do you have as the editor when making this first cut of a scene like this? Complete, complete autonomy. John definitely has a vision for what he wants, but he says, go for it. Do your version of this thing. Sometimes he'll say to me, do you want to know um, what I have in mind? And I'll say, no, I don't want to know because I want to be be able to experience the footage and um, make my own choices without any of his input. Even if it was something like Pacencia FA, which is is very close to the way he designed it, I wanted my take on it. Because there might be a special shot or a performance that he wasn't thinking of or a construction that he wasn't thinking of or... So something like in the Heights, which is like, okay, I know there's, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to go. And, you know, frustratingly enough, you know, he shot three cameras during that beautiful reflection shot with a snobby. It's just like, well, should I be cutting this up? Mm. There's great choreography going on with all these other cameras. It's like, no, no, no we're going to, this is the one we're going to sit on. Like, we don't need to cut this one up. I'm like, okay, uh-huh. cool. But like him trusting me, that trust that we were talking about earlier, him trusting me to just comb over the footage and create create my own take on it really really allows us to have a good foundation going into the post process. Right. You know, there was a three three hour version of this cut that he never he didn't see, but my assistant saw for the first time, and we I think we were just like working like week straight, literally week straight, just to get the assembly done. And um, we watched it without John ever sitting there in the edit room, you know, just that first pass. And we're weeping watching the movie. And we're like, okay, 10 o'clock at night, watching the first time, like, okay, now let's get John in the room, you know? Uh-huh. So it's, it's, and of course, I send John scenes and musical numbers that I've cut over the entire shoot. And he can give me notes, or sometimes he'll say, do you want notes? And I'm like, no, no, let's wait. <laughs> let's wait until <laughs> you see it in context, you know? Uh-huh. And, um, and then, you know, there's there's literally scenes like Alabanza or like the Mark Anthony scene with Yusnavi. There's many, many scenes in this film that are very close to my assembly. Basically, John just trusting me, letting me do my thing. Well, we're going to talk about some more of those scenes in detail. Uh, and I'm going to ask a few questions and then continue throwing out the, the anecdotes, Myron, of stuff that you remember as well. I want to talk about the pool scene, the 96,000. This is one where you can see the stage musical roots in the sense that there's this harmony of voices. But in the cut, individual voices are getting screen time, even as the other voices are still there. I just had this moment where it reminded me of when I go to the orchestra and I give my focus to a certain instrument, it sort of pulls that instrument out. I hear that instrument a little clearer out of the sort of entire orchestra playing. And whether that was completely designed by you or whether that's just a consequence of cutting, I felt a similar effect going through that number. Yeah, it was um, uh, something like 96,000, which is basically at some point, like 50 voices talking over each other. (laughs) 
it becomes like a, it becomes a real puzzle. What was really helpful when I was cutting it was was to basically isolate voices, isolate vocals, especially Usnavi, Benny, the salon ladies, and Vanessa. And by isolating them, first of all, I could understand what they were saying. And second of all, it can kind of give me a sort of a roadmap of like, what are the important points for me to be able to cut to them? And the whole thing about 96,000 is like you build each of these separate stories about what would they do with this money. And then you start to add the community in there. And I was able to build, hopefully in an okay way, <laughs> uh, build that song the way, you know, as we hear more and more of these stories and as we add the community, the cutting pattern and the energy and the sort of spectacle builds with it. And that was an example of, you know, there's this amazing underwater shot that happens when one of the dancers twirls in the air and we go underwater and we build up to the finale. That piece was not supposed to go there. It was supposed to go someplace else, but I didn't know that. <laughs> but because John gave me the freedom to put that piece there, you know, I was able to create something that he didn't intend. And in fact, you know, he was like, okay, that's cute of you doing that there, but let's, let's put it where it was designed. And of course we put it over there and we're like, oh yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work over there. And what's so great about that is like, it's counterintuitive because this is right when the song's building up. So, but we go underwater, we actually muffle the, the music a little bit and it's building at the same time. And then we come out of the water and the dancers are going crazy. And of course I, you know, the same thing we were talking about like the opening number or at the end of uh, Alabanjo, but since it's hey, I have all this B-roll camera footage of all these dancers of shape sizes, tattoos, ballet dancers, you know, pop and lock dancers, kids, old people, uh, graffiti, peach, spray painting, all this footage coming at me. And I'm just like, okay, I need to try to not cut this like a music video, but also I have to create the energy. I have to really include everybody as much as possible and also tell a story. The next scene I want to ask about is uh, when they're having the dinner party. It's really a combination of scenes where they start singing and dancing in the room together, but there's a lot of story going on there as well. And then it moves into the dinner table, which is more dramatic. But again, decisions about who to show whilst people are speaking, some of the reaction shots and all. This scene, again, is another series of scenes, if you will, that I think comes together with intention. To me, that dinner scene is one of my favorites of the entire movie because like we've spent the first half of the movie basically introducing all these characters. And this is the this is where most of the conflict starts to happen is the second half of the movie. But it's pretty it's very similar to like Crazy Rich Asians with like the hawker scene. We begin the scene with food, right? Food and music and all these characters coming together to have a good time and I just really enjoyed cross-cutting between, you know, them dancing and then like eating and making fun of each other. And then I could hit the dinner scene and the dinner scene is kind of like a continuation of that um, where they're all sitting down and just talking. And then I could just start to feel the conflict build. And for me, just cutting between everyone's looks and building up all the tension where just minutes before it was like filled with love and joy. And then you're like, okay, where is this going? It's sort of like crazy rich Asians. Like I wasn't prepared for all this drama, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and then like, well, now we're going to take you down the rabbit hole. Hopefully you've fallen in love with these characters by the time you get to this dinner scene. And now we can start letting the fireworks happen. I just love how both Alice and John shot, you know, shot those different 
basically over the shoulder shots connecting the different characters to each other. And I really tried to construct it in a way where we were basically crossing point of views. Like this is just Navi's point of view of like of this fight or Kevin's point of view of, of Nina while she's telling her story. So just making that dance, um, I don't know. It, it feels so uh, obvious, but when I was first cutting, I was like, okay, I have like, I have a thousand choices of cutting the scene how do I make it feel natural and grounded? And at the same time, you know, like it's not a big action scene or, you know, it's like kind of like a ma- mahjong scene in Crazy Rich Asians. Like mm. this is just, you know, people talking at a dinner table, like how are we going to make the fireworks happen? Well, those fireworks happen. Um, again, we warned there were spoilers. Uh, and that the energy we're talking about carries right into the next sequence where they go out to the club to go to Fiesta in the Heights. It starts with some more traditional establishing um, dramatic scenes, if you will, before the singing and the music really kicks in. And then you've got cuts back and forth. And then, as if that's not enough to try to figure out between uh, Vanessa and Uznavi, then you get to the blackout which leads to an entirely different sequence, but it's directly linked to all of that. And really that energy has to carry all the way through. Again, I'm saying this looks like it was challenging. It was probably the hardest part of this movie was cutting basically from the dinner scene all the way to Alabanza because you have the dinner scene and then you have the club and then you have the blackout, then you have Pacencia Fay and then you have Alabanza. So it's back-to-back musical numbers. And also blackout was... You know, it's not like a song that's really structured. It's just a lot of conflict. And there was also a lot of intercutting between different characters experiencing this blackout. So there wasn't really any kind of roadmap from the script standpoint, from a music standpoint, from even like a shooting standpoint. You know, John was shooting a ton of footage of dancers on the street, people looking for cab cars, the salon ladies trying to find their way, you know, graffiti Pete and Sonny launching fireworks. Vanessa pissed off and uh, stumbling upon something that might help her, her fashion designs. So it was just kind of like, well, how do we make something into this that continues the energy of the club? And the club is, is just this dance club on steroids. It's like West Side Story meets Step Up. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have to get them back to a blowless place. They can have a bingo party. They can like enjoy, um, you know, the comfort of that place, the safety of that place. And then Abuela suddenly feeling unwell and then get going into Pacencia Fey. And then Pacencia Fey, which is a show-stopping number, which has tons of footage in its own right, beautiful set pieces beautiful dioramas, beautiful performance from Olga. And then she passes away and then we go to Alabanza. I mean, I get chills just thinking about, you know, the idea that we put this all together. And it to me, it's like, um, it's like the end of an Avengers film or something. That section of the film is, there's so many moving pieces. And the fact that we, hopefully we made that into an organic sort of set piece on its own right of all these back-to-back musical numbers. It's a real hat trick. Agreed. Again, as I stated in the beginning, I think it flows very effectively through these scenes and musical numbers and the story being told, not just through song, but all of this other drama that's that's going on as well. One scene I wanted to ask you about and get the editor's perspective that does stand out to me, and I'm curious how it came together, and that's when Benny and Nina are dancing on the walls. Well, first of all, that's, that's uh, Leslie Grace and Corey dancing the entire time. 
which is amazing. And they're basically, it's a combination of a, of a set, and I'll explain the set in a second, and CG elements. So the set is essentially a wall with a fire escape on the side of it. And it's a wall that basically moves down into a floor. Basically, it's, it's an engineering feat of this entire wall going down as the camera is moving with it. Wow. So, so you, you don't really understand. Just watched the film last night. I still don't understand how we did it. It's so, <laughs> but you know, when, when I'm looking at it, of course, I'm like, it's all green behind them. You know, I see the wall and I see them and I just have to imagine the GW in the background. So I'm literally picking pieces of like, okay, where does it feel like they are being affected by gravity? What are the best performances of the dancing or the acting? And then picking those pieces with John, because you get only one take of the, of the whole wall going down, or you only get one take of that last shot of them doing that last dance move on the side of the building. There was like, like they shot that like 15 times or something. <laughs> and we're like, it's this take. No, it's this take. No, there's a little bump there when they kiss. So we would invite Chris Scott, who is a choreographer in and say, what is, you know, what take represents his choreography in the best light? Because we wanted to make sure that there wasn't any flaws in it because I couldn't hide something like that in the editing. And we're like, okay, that's that's great, but the kiss is wrong. Or there's a little bump, you know, they they bumped on down when they're going on the side of the building. And also, you know, that number, sort of like Yusnavi's reflection at the beginning of In the Heights or even Champagne, which is a wonder, there's not too many edits in that entire sequence. It's it's really me pulling back and letting the camera work do its thing, let them sort of let Leslie and Corey draw me into the into the number. But so, you know, I just watched that for the first time in a year on the big screen. And boy, do I forget, like, where the visual effects. I'm like, I, I still don't understand. <laughs> I still don't understand where it begins and ends. Like that first shot, you know, you're underneath the fire escape. And you're like, how did I even get there? Yeah. Well, Byron, I've got little questions probably about every single scene in the film, but let me give the floor back to you. What other scenes or sequences or musical numbers were really notable for you, either as a challenge or as an achievement? Well, I really loved a, a number like It Won't Be Long Now, because that's an example of where you have different elements, like you have set pieces like in uh, Melissa's apartment, Vanessa's apartment. And, you know, you have green screen behind her and we're putting, you know, the subway train behind her and they're shaking the apartment <laughs> and making it, you know, feel like, you know, the train's rumbling by and she's beginning the song. And then, you know, we cut to her downtown and she goes to the apartment and then we stop the music and we have a scene. That scene cuts to back to the bodega. Her, she walks in and I have this really great scene between Melissa and Anthony where they're, you know, basically flirting with each other. And then you have Gregory who plays Sonny and, you know, he's just really cute and adorable and funny. And then you start the music up again. You're still, you're back in the song and it feels like, oh yeah, we never really left that song. We're still part of the same musical number. And then we can do this magical realism with the, with the fabric flying over the buildings. And then we can go um, back into the salon. Like that is a real hat trick to keep you, I keep saying hat trick, <laughs> but it is, it's magic. It's really, it is, it's magic that we could keep a musical number that basically stopped for like two or three minutes and then pick it back up and it feel still organic. Or you have a number like Nomadiga, which is just like, 
to me, it's like I've always wanted to make a musical number that was like straight out of Greece. And here, you know, I just have all these great characters, you know, making fun of each other. I have all this, this great details of all the nails and the different patrons, you know, basically arguing with Daniela. Um, and then we get to have fun with the wigs, you know, them being like little characters, like, and we have the, the women with the nails, like performing the little dance number. Like I could have made a whole dance number just of those, those women with the nails. Or you have a musical number like Carnival. To me, it's like every time we would cut that number, you know, we, there'd be tears in the edit room and you could just feel the energy of the community coming back to life when it was so sleepy and they were like feeling the, you know, the despair of Abuela passing away. Or Alabanza, where I literally cut that musical number with all the lights off, but with a candle because I couldn't, the light levels were so low that I couldn't, I wanted to see people's faces. So I was letting my assistants like, What's he doing? It's like, oh, he's cutting Alabanza. <laughs> Should we come in? No, maybe we'll leave him alone. It's looking a little seancey <laughs> in that edit room. Every single one of these musical numbers were a challenge in different ways. And, you know, it's an editor's dream to cut these different set pieces, you know, whether it's the opening number or Breathe, which is really elegant and, you know, soft. And it's all about just focusing like a laser beam on Leslie's performance or something like 96,000, which is just like a show-stopping, you know, musical feat in its own right. It's taking Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood musicals and setting it on a, on a whole other bar. Myron, one challenge that was less about the music, but I also thought was really key to how the film comes across. And that's the framing sequence of Usnavi at the beach with the kids. And he's telling the story. I feel like this is something that you've got to do just right, that it doesn't give itself away and yet works again within the context of the story. And so I'm curious about how this came together. I don't imagine that it's in the stage show. It's not mentioned on the wiki page, and I'm not familiar with the stage musical directly. But basically, when you see that, how you make that work as well as it does? Well, yeah, the beach was not part of the original production. It was a total uh, creation by Kiara and John for the screenplay of the film. And it was the biggest debate. And through the whole entire post process, we would literally screen it for people and we're like, there's too much beach. There's not enough beach. The beach <laughs> is placed in the wrong places. I wanted to strangle everybody because do you know how hard it is to like to, to work with this framing device? For me, like the beach was really important because this was it wasn't just us trying to fool the audience. OK, it, it was about this idea of like what's important about this film is telling our stories like continuing to tell our stories in order to tr pass on traditions. It doesn't matter if you're from Washington Heights or you're from San Diego, which is where I'm from. Like it's about us passing on our stories to the next generation. And the beach is this idea of like, where's home? You know, is home at the beach or is home like right in front of us? Is it literally with the people we love anywhere? And especially after something like the pandemic, I feel like that idea is like we're all like scratching our heads. Like this home is this place where I've been with my wonderful family stuck in an apartment, or is it like this place I want to go when this pandemic is over? But back to like, there's so many people that just wanted to know, like, why do we keep kind of the beach? It's like, because if we keep kind of the beach, a, it gives us breaths between musical numbers, or we're going to have water wall musical numbers, but also allows, it reminds us that Yusnavi is at this place telling the story. How do we get to that place? If we keep coming to that beach, we're going to say, okay, let me know when we get to that place. 
or I can't wait till we get to that place because that's, that's success, right? The beach is like where he gets to like spend his, you know, the rest of his life. Everyone dreams of like moving to the DR or Hawaii or, you know, some beach and retire. So the more we cut to it, the more we establish, we remind people that he got to this place. We continue to remind us that he's telling the story to these kids, that he's passing on, as Abuela says, these little details. And of course, it's great, you know, if, if we fooled anybody, <laughs> that we realized he was telling the whole story from the bodega, you know, and we do our little usual suspect sort of montage of, un- you know, unraveling it a little bit for the audience. And I think it's really satisfying. I, I love it so much. I, I think that um, I'm very curious when people say, you know, they're not sure about the beach. And I, I also love it because it, it makes me feel a little unmoored. Like I remember watching all that jazz as a kid. And I don't even think I understood what was going on when we were cutting between the different realities. It just, I think it was just scaring the shit out of me. And I think that the beach kind of was like my version of that. Like when I cut to the beach, I felt unmoored. I didn't know like where I was in reality to use Snobby's journey. Like even in one of my favorite moments, that's at the end of Alabanza. You know, you cut to Yusnavi just basically quiet, just looking off into the distance, like just thinking about the memory of this, the pain and the, I'm getting emotional talking about it. <laughs> and uh, you feel unmoored and you feel like you feel the emptiness. And if I didn't cut to that shot, I think that you wouldn't feel lost the way he does, you know, in that point in the movie. And then he starts to rap <laughs> on the beach and then that pulls us back into the apartment. And then there's this beautiful uh, moment where he starts one line at the beach and then he finishes it in the apartment. If I didn't have the beach, I couldn't do any of that. It's a thing. It's again, it's one of the, the many things that I love about this film that we get, we got to play with. All those points you make Myron on that. I, I, I will admit to being someone that generally doesn't like a flash forward in a film. I feel like the story should tell its own way there rather than create this drama. And I think if the beach had just been a literal summary of where we were going, the final destination, I think I probably would have enjoyed it less. But the way that it interacts exactly the way you describe, and then the way the reveal just speaks and summarizes the whole film, it was even more effective for me. And so put me on the side of folks who thinks it's a it's a great way to to frame the movie. And again, separates the movie experience from what the stage musical delivers in a, in a different way. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. I'm very, I'm very proud of the device. I know that Kiara and John are, you know, when they first saw my assembly of the film, they're like, Oh my God, the beach works. It works. <laughs> it's like, uh, we got work to do. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of beach that's on the cutting room floor, a lot more pops to a scenes. There was a moment where there was even a, the kids are actually in, in uh, one of the stairwells. So there's a little of like a crossover that like the beach has entered Washington Heights. And it was just too much, you know, it was too much, but um, just finding that right balance, you know, and then doing things like with the murals, you know, with like the, the, you know, the, the, uh, anyways, you get the point. You can, <laughs> Let's come back around to some things we said at the beginning about the release of this film. And you had the desire to release it in the midst of the pandemic to give people something to be excited about during what were some challenging times. 
I think now with the film's release here at the tail end of the pandemic, it's really like a coming out party for everyone, whether it's specifically you relate to this community, but that sense of community overall, I think that this is a case where Warner Brothers has really gotten the release right. And this wellspring of release that people are feeling, I think is really captured in this film. You're absolutely right. I was very impatient at the time. I was worried, like everybody, like, are we ever going to get on the other side of this? You know, is this pandemic ever going to end? There was so much unknown, but, you know, it's like somebody threw a dart <laughs> at a date and said, this is when, you know, it just happens to be right when everyone is coming out. Literally what you're saying, it's like a, a big coming out party of people like, okay, let's go back to the theater. Like, let's, let's remind ourselves what summer is like, you know, going to see a big blockbuster. Somebody asked me like, what do you think of being part of like a blockbuster? I was like, well, I grew up loving Spielberg and Lucas and like looked forward to seeing Indiana Jones like come out for a summer release. And now we get to be that film at the end of this pandemic. I mean, it's just a, a dream come true. It sounds so corny, but it is. And also just to, somebody said like, you get to be a part of like, part of the healing process. And that, you know, I don't even know how to even, cause it's healed me. You know, it gave me, you know, a, a sense of hope that we could get back to normal. Myron, this film's a gift. Congratulations. Thanks so much for coming on the show today and, and giving us some insights. Thank you, man. It's really an honor and thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Well, season eight is now well underway. We've got some great episodes in the pipeline. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. And please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. New listeners, it's easy to peruse all of our back episodes at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are now also on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Take care. Join us again next week for a new episode of Below the Line.